0: You are listening to a Core Awareness seminar by Liz Cook. Her website is www.coreawareness.com. That's C O R E awareness.com. Please note that Core Awareness is a trademark signature of Liz Cook, her workshops, seminars, books, and CDs. The information presented in the seminar is in no way intended as a substitute for receiving professional medical care. The design and purpose of the seminar is to provide information and to simply educate. The author and publisher shall have neither liability nor responsibility to any person or entity with respect to any loss, damage, or injury caused or alleged to be caused directly or indirectly by the information, suggestions, explorations, or exercises contained within the seminar or written in response to the seminar. The author is not a medical authority, and she is not qualified to diagnose or prescribe any therapy. The information is simply her personal opinion. Please seek medical care for whatever condition you may have. Well, I want to welcome everybody to Core Awareness. I'm Liz Cook and my website is www.coreawareness.com and my specialty so to speak is working with the psoas muscle and as you join us I welcome you please uh, hit your star button and your number six button that will help us get a good clear recording I do these uh, teleseminars fairly often about once a month sometimes Um, because I think that they're uh, important to start to really investigate what the psoas is all about. It's so much more than a muscle, as most of you who are on already know. And, um, and so along with having a, a functional healthy soas, is recognizing its neurological behavior and its relationship to uh, trauma. So today I've invited David Berceli. And uh, Dr. Berceli is an international expert in the area of trauma. And he and I met, I guess, a long time ago. I don't know, maybe six years or so ago now. But um, he's been working with conflict resolution. And one of the things I find particularly profound about uh, David's work is that he's, for the past, what, about 22 years, you lived... um, in different, nine different countries. And so he worked with trauma around the world and uh, working with just a wide range of people. And I'm going to let you, David, kind of fill that story in a little bit. But um, but I find that particularly relevant to today's situation is that it's not a particular cultural perspective of trauma. It's really a, a species um Perspective of trauma. I think that's particularly really important. So I'm very excited uh, to have you, David, and welcome. And before we begin, I'd like to ask everyone who's just joined us to hit star and six. That will help mute you, and we won't hear your background sounds, and we'll be able to hear David more clearly. So welcome, David.
1: Thanks a lot, Liz. Nice to be here with you.
0: So tell us a little bit uh, more for those of who don't know a lot about your background, give us a sense of how did, how did you get involved with trauma recovery?
1: Well, I worked with a nonprofit organization many years ago, and I was, happened to be in the Middle East and Africa doing a lot of my work. While I was living there, I also happened to be in countries where there was a lot of war and political violence. What that did was it forced me to see humanity in a way that many people don't have the opportunity. And essentially, I saw humanity struggling, in a sense, for its very survival. Because when you're living in intense poverty or war or <clears throat> some type of violence or really poor uh, socioeconomic uh, status. Not,
0: thank you. Excuse me, whoever is on, please hit star six, please, and do not talk. Thank you so much.
1: And so I began to see humanity in a way that most people don't see it. And what I recognize by watching humanity like this is that all of us, even if you would say here in this country in the United States, we might be middle class, we haven't had severe traumas, we don't think we've had them in our life, but humanity still operates the same way under stress, anxiety, trauma. And I began to see these patterns because they were so blatantly sort of revealed to me by seeing humanity at some of its most severe and intense um, forms of life. So I actually lived with people who had tremendous stress, anxiety, traumas, but it was the whole population living like that to give me a perspective of looking at humanity as a human species and how are all of us surviving and what are the innate mechanisms that we have inside of our bodies and our brains that help us survive stressful, um, traumatic events in our lives. And so that's sort of where my perspective came from in terms of working with trauma and the body.
0: So what I'd like to do is I'd like to just jump right in and start with... Uh what are we defining as trauma and 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 for those of you who have joined us i can hear you sneezing and coughing so please star six i know i won't receive that cold but um we will get it on the tape so please everybody hit your number star button and your number six button so we can have a quiet uh conversation that everybody can hear and people can also uh, be able to listen to again thank you so david tell us what trauma What are you you defining as trauma? What is trauma? We use the word all
1: the time. There are really two key words to remember about trauma which help define it. One is it was some situation that, in a sense, overwhelmed you. You couldn't help yourself in the situation. It happened to you, and there was nothing you could do to stop it. And when that situation overwhelms you, you begin to have a sense of helplessness. So let's look at very specific things, like a car accident. Nothing you could do to prevent the car accident. It happened to you. And so you were a victim, if you will, of a circumstance of life that happened. Tornadoes, earthquakes, hurricanes. Those are common ones. Those are considered hard traumas. But even childhood issues, such as falling down and breaking your arm, or, you know, g- gashing your head and needing stitches, those are considered traumas too they're somewhat more innocent but still the brain and the body take that up as a potential life or death threat because if you're three years old and you fall down on a cement sidewalk and you bang your head and you need stitches that has a very powerful effect on a three-year-old that it may not have the same effect on a 23 year old because a 23 year old doesn't feel as helpless and hopeless from the situation but a three-year-old could feel completely helpless particularly if mommy and daddy weren't around to help them get up. So trauma is very big in the scope of its definition but also very specific in that it overwhelmed you at the time of the event and there was a quality of helplessness that you couldn't do something to get yourself out of it. The other trauma that we have to look at is something that we call developmental trauma. What if you grew up in a family where Um, the the parents are constantly fighting and you constantly live under anxiety and stress and fear that they're going to get a divorce for a five-year-old that can be very traumatizing different for a 19 year old not as traumatizing or what if a parent is alcoholic or they're uh, using some sort of substance and you constantly live in fear or danger or anxiety that's what's considered developmental trauma meaning nothing specifically happened to you, but you lived under tremendous helplessness and stress for a great deal of time.
0: Great. So um, I want to welcome everybody who's just joined us and ask you to please star six. That means hit your star button and your six button that will mute you, and you'll be able to listen clearly, but we won't hear background sounds. And for those joining us, I want to welcome you. My name is Liz Cook. My website is Core Awareness, and my focus is the psoas muscle, and today I'm interviewing David Bruselli, Dr. Bruselli, whose website is traumaprevention.com, and uh, David is the author of several DVDs and books that are available on his website. One of them is a step-by-step book, and there's another that's a DVD, and a revolutionary trauma release process, so you can go on his website and see... um, and we'll talk about those in a few minutes. So please star six, we're in the process of uh, an interview. Uh, so David, so let's, um, let's take it into, okay, so now we kind of know this is an overwhelming, overwhelming event. People call what they experience trauma. Uh, how do we define trauma in the present moment to uh, what is called post-traumatic stress syndrome? or disorder.
1: Okay. All right. So let's suggest we have a traumatic event. I've been in a car accident as an example. Post-traumatic stress disorder is not exactly a disorder. It's, it's post-trauma stress reaction, meaning a day after the car accident or a week after the car accident, I find myself getting angry or crying or feeling a sense of helplessness, Or the next time I see a red car, if that's the color of the car that hit me, I might begin to feel anxiety about all red cars. Or I might smell gasoline at the gas station, which reminds me of the gasoline smell I had when my car flipped over. Okay, And those are called triggers, something that triggers the emotion of the event of the past. So post-traumatic stress disorder literally is any stress or anxiety that's continuing to surface in my present-day life from an experience of my past. Now, that could be everything from childhood traumas, if I had, was sexually abused, as an example, and I get into an adult relationship, and I begin to have difficulty in, in sexual communication as an adult because the uh, triggers are being activated from an early childhood experience that was unfavorable or frightening for me. So post-traumatic stress disorders, anything that's happening to you now, that is still a residual result of something that's unresolved from a, a past traumatic experience.
0: And um, one of the things that I think you stand out in in the work that you do is looking that as humans – Uh, as a human species that we're designed to be able to uh, experience, endure, and survive these episodes. And so uh, tell us a little bit more about that, because most people feel pretty overwhelmed and therefore feel like this is a pretty tragic event in one's life, not something that we're able to really cope with. So tell us more about how how we're innately capable of coping with trauma.
1: Okay, that's the perfect point for all of us to sort of stress when we think about traumas in life because quite frankly when you look at the human species like any other living species on the planet we have consistently throughout all of our history as humans experienced traumatic events what's interesting about that is we have survived those events and more interesting to me is we actually have evolved as a result of traumatic events trauma hasn't in a sense hurt the human species it has been part of the evolution of the human species so we are genetically encoded with the whole history of human species we have genetically encoded in us how we've survived those events how we've gotten through them how we've evolved from those events and how we can continue to endure those events if we had not learned that and genetically transmitted that through all the generations of humanity, we would have died as a species so that any species on this planet who has already gone extinct, whether it's plant or animal, is because the trauma actually overwhelmed the entire species. But we have not gone extinct yet, and we have and continue to transmit how to survive traumatic events on the planet. So actually trauma is part of our evolutionary process. This is why I like to take, tra- the, in a sense, the dirtiness out of trauma that makes us so frightened um, and um, uh, uh, alert about this. And if you recognize, well, we've been through this our whole life, and every one of us, every person listening to this has many, many traumas, many innocent traumas in their lives, a broken arm, or broken leg, um, an appendix uh, problem, uh, you know, some sort of medical illness, growing up in dysfunctional families, all those can be considered traumas. And yet when you look at them, when we get older, we look at our past lives, we can look at and say, you know what, those traumas helped me to reconceive life in a different way, to develop relationships in a different way, and actually have helped us mature through life. And so traumas actually are very much a part of, for many of us, everyday part of our lives.
0: So one of the um, that's great, and, and and that's relieving to hear. Um, <laughs> and uh, and we, you and I, have had the discussion around the capacity to, to grow wisdom, and that maybe possibly we even have a uh, an attachment to to trauma as a way of evolving. And I don't know if you, this is the time and place to speak to that, but I think that's an interesting subject. And if you've joined us, please star six so we don't hear any background noise and have a clear. Um, recording. We're speaking with David Brucelli about trauma and we're going to get to the SoAs in just a few minutes but um, I wanted to kind of lay out David's work and uh, first. So-
1: well I think wisdom is a good word to use because it's a very hopeful word and many people understand and particularly the older we get in life the more we recognize even in a humble way that yes we have some kind of wisdom. Here's a perfect example a mother has a child she goes through the pain of the birthing process and she may have two or three children in her life and she knows each time it's going to be painful but each time she's learning something about the birthing process later on when her daughter grows up and she becomes pregnant and she's about to have a child she goes to the mother and says what was it like what is it going to be like is it as painful as they say And the mother has wisdom, and wisdom is from having survived the experience and then learned something to be able to teach to her child. So now she tells her daughter, yes, it is painful. It's a natural painful process, but yet you go through it, and on the other side is this amazing infant that you have this tremendous bond with, and you want to hold and nurture it and somehow The pain is put in a relative perspective with the amount of joy and love that comes. So there's a perfect example built into the human species. It's the trauma of birthing a child. And yet the joy, the wisdom, the pleasure, and the learning that comes from that natural traumatic event in life. And so everybody does develop some sort of wisdom when they learn how to integrate the traumatic event, heal from it, And in that process, they have learned some very important lesson about life, which they should now be capable of passing on to the next generation. And that's what wisdom figures were supposed to be about and are about in our cultures, and elderly people were supposed to take that place, and in many traditional cultures, they still do. Now, unfortunately, we don't deal with our elderly the same way that many traditional cultures do, and we sort of put them out to pasture in some ways, but they are the wisdom figures of our culture who we should look up to and say, when you were in this situation, grandma or grandpa or mom or dad, what did you do? And then they provide us with the historical experiences of how did they deal with that in life, and from that, we actually pass on wisdom, which is part of what we're transmitting genetically to one another to say, how do we survive our next traumatic event in life?
0: So thank you. So let's move on to looking at some basic things around the nervous system and, and why, um, why the, the psoas is is a part of this whole... Whole event. Um, I know that, you know, you contacted me years ago about my work with the PSOAS and, and told me some about what you were doing with trauma releasing exercises. But I um, you know, I have my ideas about it. But but as as the expert on trauma, how do you see the role of the SOAS with the parasympathetic sympathetic nervous system, for example?
1: Okay, so let me talk a little bit about the PSOAS first and then I'll talk about the nervous system and how it activates. The psoas muscle, which I suspect all of your listeners are familiar with, runs, um, through the, uh, from the front of the, the lower back, through the pelvis, and connects into the top of the leg, okay? When that muscle contracts, it helps pull the body forward into a fetal position. Now fetal position is the safest position for the human body because we stand upright as a species. So anytime we're endangered, the safest thing to do is to begin to contract the body forward so you can protect the underbelly. That's what you've written in your book and it's very clear. Well, what's interesting about it, if you think of every response of, uh, of defense in the human body, the defensive response always requires a pulling forward into the front of the body. So as an example, if I were going to run, and you can watch this, all runners bend down, they bend forward, they crouch a little bit because they can run faster when they bend down and access the center of gravity of the body which is located in the pelvis. If I were going to kick as a defensive response, I also would bend my knees, bend down to find my center of gravity, and in that process, the psoas muscle would contract. If I punch somebody, I'm going to punch by bending my knees, bending down. You can watch this with boxers, and they get a more powerful punch when the punch comes from bending down into the knees and legs and crouching forward just a little bit in the psoas, the psoas muscle contracts every position of fight or flight is about contracting the psoas muscle. If that is the case, and that is instinctively activated, meaning if there was a loud bomb right now and everybody heard this loud sound, they would crouch forward as a way of ducking. And we see this all the time if people are out in public and a car backfires and all of a sudden everybody ducks down. that ducking down isn't what, what's called autonomic part of the nervous system, meaning you don't think about it. You do it as a reaction, just like blinking or panic breathing or your heart rate and your blood pressure um, uh, activate stronger when you're under fear or stress or anxiety. Even when you say, I wish I could calm down, you're not under control of the sympathetic nervous system that has activated you and that's many people say I wish I could calm down but I can't that's because it's an automatic part of the nervous system so when you think of the nervous system as having parts that automatically um, produce reactions in us like our heart rate blood pressure and respiration well that crouching down position is an automatic physical reaction anytime the nervous system senses there's something dangerous so loud noise or um, fears or car accidents, anxieties, they will always cause us to begin to crouch in a forward position. So now we have the nervous system that activates the psoas muscle. And this is what's really key. We don't consciously contract the psoas muscle. It is contracted for us by the sympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system is what we call the fight or flight nervous system it's sympathetic to our danger. So it increases our heart rate, our blood pressure, our respiration, and it contracts our body to prepare to battle or defend itself against the danger. So there's very much a physical response from the psoas muscle as soon as heart rate, blood pressure, and respiration increase, because that's part of the whole combination of events that happen in the body-mind continuum to protect us from whatever we feel is dangerous. So the sympathetic nervous system contracts it. Now it would be inefficient as a human species to have evolved with this nervous system that activates automatically to contract it without also having evolved with a nervous system that can automatically release it, which is the parasympathetic nervous system, the one that causes us to calm down to go into rest and digest our food, etc. So once you activate the sympathetic nervous system because you sense danger, when the danger's over, we should automatically be able to activate the parasympathetic nervous system, which reduces heart rate, blood pressure, respiration, and reduces the stress or the tension in the psoas muscle so it can go back to a relaxed state again.
0: So I see the psoas as a, um, as part of uh, the true core, so to speak, kind of a, uh, I call it an organ of perception. Um, I think that it's a lot like the tongue, that we don't really need to do anything. um, We don't need to exercise it. There's no animal that exercises one muscle of their body. And I often tell people it's the one muscle you don't need to strengthen, that a, uh, uh, a week, so as is really a um, an overused, abused, or uh, misunderstood, uh, misused um, mm-hmm. tissue, and and so would you agree with that? And and if so, um, you know, speak to that a little bit of how you see that in in the response that people have that there's something interrupted. Uh, what I say is that it's a messenger, and therefore it's telling us a little something more about what's going on either in our nervous system or possibly in our proprioception uh, as a responding. So, for example, if there's disharmony or dysfunction in the SI joints, it, it, it will call the psoas into play. It will express that so that as we get to know our psoas, it's not so much doing something to it as reading it as a messenger and recognizing what it's telling us.
1: Yeah, the psoas muscle is telling us two things, and this is what's interesting about it. It's telling us, it's giving us some sort of signaling from the body itself, meaning the physiology of the human organism, and it's sending signals around the neurology, meaning what's going on in our brain, what's activating in the brain. And for most people who live under constant stress or anxiety, the psoas muscle is constantly t- trying to show us that the, the neural physiology is very overactivated. And that's why people have such um, physical problems in the pelvis or hips or lower back area, is because the psoas muscle, much like the sympathetic nervous system, is always on a state of alert. And it's not getting its chance to relax and restore itself back to its healthy state of contraction and flexibility or tightness and softness and so it does send signals constantly saying I'm Exhausting myself much as, like adrenal overload is trying to send a signal from the adrenal glands to the brain saying i 'm pumping all the time, and this is not helpful it 's going to wear me down and the psoas muscle does something similar it sends signals about the disorganization of the physical body as well as the disorganized pattern of the sympathetic nervous system that 's overactivated as a neurological system in the body, and so now you have a brain-body continuum that the, that the psoas muscle is trying to, in a sense, shout to us, saying, turn me off so I can go back to a relaxed state. Right.
0: So we both approach the psoas a little bit differently um, because I don't necessarily work with trauma. I'm looking to build the parasympathetic. So let's talk a little bit about the parasympathetic in this role because it seems to me that um, in, a, in a lifestyle in which the, um, you're not in a war zone or you're not in a, a, a life-threatening a, a life situation or the life-threatening situation is already over. Um, how do you see the parasympathetic? I see the parasympathetic as yeah. it being a continuum. And so I'm looking at coherency and resiliency in the nervous system when I'm working with people so that we have the capacity like an animal to respond to jumping off the curb as the bus goes by or responding to something that happens and then being able to uh, resolve it. And I love your work with the concept of resolution. So I'm kind of moving you in that direction. But but first, let's talk about parasympathetic.
1: Okay. So parasympathetic response is that response that is the um, deactivating part of the nervous system, if you will. It takes us out of that fight-or-flight response and helps us calm down a little bit. It's unfortunate that in our society, we don't really reinforce parasympathetic response very well because we find activity, action, uh, the adrenaline rush, um, movies that excite us. We are constantly overstimulating the nervous system, and we don't put as much respect to and care or concern around the parasympathetic response. Most of us rest because we're exhausted, not because we say, you know what, I think I'm just going to lay down and relax for two hours. Our systems are so overactivated, we have such active lifestyles that we're actually not giving appropriate response. To the parasympathetic nervous system and that's why as Americans as an example on our one-week vacation we might get during the year what do we do we go to some beautiful beach resort and and we're exhausted we lay around the pool for three or four days before we can even get out so what we need to do is recognize is that every day we go we should be able to go through the rhythm of sympathetic activation where we charge ourselves up for the day We eat lunch, we should go into a parasympathetic response, which is what taking a siesta is all about, putting yourself down for rest and digest, and then after you've rested and digested your food, the sympathetic response kicks back in again. And so we should have that cycle every day in our life, from sympathetic to parasympathetic, but we really have distorted it. And some authors suggest it began to get really distorted once we, learned, once we developed electricity, when we could stay up past the sunset, we learned how to keep the sympathetic nervous system over-activated. Because when we couldn't do that, we used to go to bed, and we'd have an appropriate sympathetic and parasympathetic cycle in our lives.
0: So, so one of the words I hear you using is the word rhythm and cycles and... And uh, it seems to be one of the ways to start nourishing the parasympathetic is to recreate that sense of uh, of something that has a wave motion uh, in our lives, whether it's the cycle of eating harmoniously with what's growing, where you are in the climate, so you're in rhythm to the earth, in rhythm to your day, in rhythm to the season. It seems a rhythm and is a very important part of moving out of or nourishing the parasympathetic, which allows us to be more resilient when something comes along that triggers us.
1: That's exactly right. As human beings, we think we really dominate nature, but we don't actually. Our body, our very organism responds to rhythms and cycles. It responds to warm and cold. It responds to light and day. And so our body is constantly seeking to follow what it already is genetically encoded to do, to follow its natural rhythm of excitement and rest, excitement and rest. But we actually interfere with that natural cycle. One of the biggest problems we have in our culture in the United States, which is really not surprising is that most people cannot sleep at night they cannot get a restful night's sleep and that's not because the body doesn't know how to sleep it's not because the body doesn't know how to activate its parasympathetic response and go into rest and digest it's because we don't follow the signals it's giving us to to follow its natural cycle so we interfere with or ignore the signals that the body is sending to go into the cycle of rest and digest we turn it off by having another cup of coffee or saying, well, I can't right now. I have too much work. I've got to keep going for two more hours. And so we interfere with its natural cycle, and it's constantly signaling to us to go through this rhythm. And I think your key word about resiliency is absolutely accurate. The most resilient person is the person who stays in their natural cycle because that means their body will be healthiest. The chemicals they produce The neural patterns that are produced, the physiological responses, all of those can only happen when we follow the natural rhythm of the organism and that is the most resilient person. I work a lot with soldiers and I can use them as a good example. Soldiers are trained to be pumped up, charged up, sent to war. While they are in war, in Iraq or Afghanistan right now where they're going, they live at a very high-charged state for the entire year. They very seldom get a good night's sleep. They don't rest well. They're overworked, etc. When they come back to the states, they don't know how to turn that system off. And then they have lots of physical and psycho-emotional illnesses because they've lost their resiliency. The resiliency is to know how to turn on your fight-or-flight response when you need it and then how to deactivate that turning on your rest and digest response when you need that. And when you have that full rhythm in your body, you are the most resilient as a living organism.
0: Right. And and it seems to me that also within that resiliency, that rest and digest is repair. So my understanding is that you actually can't heal when you're in sympathetic. You can only heal tissue when you're in parasympathetic.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right because repair is in fact a restoration because our um, immune system actually reduces when we turn on the sympathetic response because we don't have to be worried about a cold when a tiger is chasing us but what happens is if you stay in the sympathetic response you'll have a very reduced immune system and then more susceptible to illnesses obviously and that's what the biggest amount of stress is in our society today illnesses are due to over stress because people don't have healthy immune systems, so they're taking immune boosters, but they're not being helpful. Because what they need to do is actually activate the parasympathetic response, which is the only way to increase the immune system. Okay.
0: So that's how I work with the SOAs, and I see that as as a as a one of the segues to um, to to the nervous system. Um, is by starting the process of releasing, letting gravity release the psoas in constructive rest, and and working, starting to slow down and become uh, perceptive of what we're sensing, these cues you're talking about. How do we actually recognize them and, and value them and, and sense them in our own organism? It's not really something we have to track with the brain so much as that we have to have a certain level of consciousness to, um, to valuing what it is that we sense.
1: Yeah, I also, in the work that you do, you help people have somatic sensory awareness, meaning you try to get them to actually feel their body because the sympathetic response actually anesthetizes us often to sensations and feelings. So that when you tell people, slow down, go into constructive rest, you're trying to hold them in that state so they actually get sensory perception of the body. So they can actually feel the muscles talking to them. They can feel the contraction in the muscle. They can feel where they're not resting. And that's what's extremely important. People no longer have sensory perception in their bodies because they're over-contracted and they simply learn to live in that contracted state without really central. Sensory perception or awareness.
0: So this takes us to this idea I want to get to today <clears throat> is release versus resol- resolution, because mm-hmm. a lot of people uh, in the bodywork world want to go in and palpate the psoas, release it for you, get you you know get that psoas functioning well so you're healthy. And my perspective of that is that the actual um, going in the actual. What I would call invasiveness of the of the system because the psoas is so responsive um, neurologically that it's it's and it 's so deep in our core that the organism can 't help but do just what you said, roll up or respond to that manipulation or even then the best intentions and the best sensory awareness of the other person 's hands there's it 's still not the most conducive way to engage with the psoas. I think ultimately we have to engage with it, engage with our own own sensory awareness and our own tissue. But also <clears throat> many people tell me who've had various trigger points or m- massages or manipulations with their psoas that they didn't like it, they had a reaction to it, but maybe they cried and they felt better for an hour, two hours, a month, but then it all came back and you were one of the people who really uh, really uh, brought the idea of resolution versus release and I would love for you to talk about that
1: okay so when you t- when you mention release you're talking about the physical release of the contraction in the psoas muscle or other muscles in the body but that's not and
0: necessarily and ultimately the same as resolution that, that right division. exactly
1: so and I think it's important to make the distinction between the two because as a massage therapist, I used to, as an example, have clients come in every week, their neck and shoulders were tight, neck and shoulders were tight, and I'd give them great massages, and their neck and shoulder pain would go away for two or three days, and next week they'd come back with it again. What I realized was that the neck and shoulder pain was related to a contracted psoas muscle. Now, the psoas muscle is at the base of the spine, neck and shoulders at the top of the spine, but I could never release, bring a full resolution, if you will, to the contraction in the neck and shoulders until I found out where the origin of the contraction was and the origin was in the psoas muscle. Once I got them to help bring some release to the psoas muscle, their neck and shoulder pain would go away and it would stay away actually. So it's a matter of finding what's causing the contraction in the first place. So that's neck and shoulder. Now if we go directly to the psoas muscle, here's the difficulty. If the psoas muscle contracts automatically, without our conscious control, and it's contracted because of some perceived dangers in our life. And if that contraction has stayed, we haven't resolved the reason for the contraction, meaning we haven't resolved the trauma, what will happen is if I go in and try to help bring a physical release through massage by trying to relax the psoas muscle and the resolution of the trauma has not been um, achieved, I put the body in a conflict. I'm trying to force the psoas muscle into relaxation and the psoas muscle is tr- still trying to contract as a form of protection. So it can't go into resolution because the reason for the contraction hasn't been resolved. If I can find out why it's contracted, and bring resolution to that, the psoas muscle will let go all by itself. It doesn't need a physical uh, forcing of release to have that happen. So in general, we have to look at the resolution first. Why is it contracted in the first place? Find out why it's contracted, deal with that issue, and then the physical release will automatically happen.
0: If I'm... Um and to say a little more about that, do you, uh, are you referring to the fact that to be effective you have to know what the trauma is?
1: No, you don't have to know what the trauma is because a lot of us don't know our traumas. You, um, what happens is, as an example, when you have people going into their constructive rest, they may start to cry or they might feel fear or a whole variety of emotions but have no idea what they're from. But all of that is something about the story in the body that's being released and somehow being told. It doesn't have to be cognitively remembered at all. Um, People just have to allow the release to happen in the body so that, as an example, in the constructive rest, they are allowing the organism its time to be able to start letting go of the muscle tissue, bringing about the release naturally, and the release may begin to reveal the story, but not cognitively. It may reveal the story emotionally. It may reveal the story just in a sensory type of way. Um, and it may reveal the story in laughter or, or something. But that that release that's happening through constructive rest is a resolution that's being brought to the organism, which is then secondarily producing the release of the psoas muscle.
0: I use um, I use fetal and a position that I call startle, um, to 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 allow the system to go back to neutral, and I notice for some people curling in as you were speaking of earlier is really really important, but for others it's the it's the startle that that comes first before they can roll in and. And get that resolution is to go in and startle what I mean is just what uh the what babies do where they throw their arms up, they open their throat right. they arc, and you'll see that in a in a two year old who's having a tantrum it's and you also see it in the undulation of the organism through full body uh, orgasm so um, this startle position seems also very powerful as a way to initiate this conversation with the SOAS in a very direct but in a very respectful way.
1: Right. Well you use a key word which is very important. You say you allow the system. Basically you're helping put it in positions that allows it to reorganize and reorchestrate its way back into recovery and 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 safety. And that's what we have to do. We have to allow the organism to orchestrate that movement. Because you're right, some people have to start through the startle position and others start through the fetal position. But that has something to do with the initial trauma. And so that's what's really hard about working with, with people in the sense that we have to allow them to find within their organism how the organism has to orchestrate the release process and the final recovery or the resolution of the trauma within its organism, and but allowing it to happen is the key thing, so that we we facilitate the organism unfolding itself back to health. Now, if you if you want to read more about that, you could read Stephen Porges's work, where he actually has what he's called the polyvagal theory of the nervous system where he has um, identified when people go into the fetal position is a certain part of the nervous system and when they go into the startle response that's a different part of the nervous system. And so he identifies the polyvagal theory a little bit more complex than just simply fight or flight or rest and digest. And so he, he really sees that as evolved beings we can startle We can go into fetal position, we can have fight or flight, and we can have relaxation, all of which is orchestrated by the nervous system.
0: One of the things that you've uh, really brought, I think, to this conversation is the idea that trauma is biological, not psychological. And I'd like you to, you know, I haven't heard you speak of that for a few years, so what's your take on it right now? Because most people go into therapy when they're traumatized.
1: Right, right i don't when i work with a lot of people i actually don't work psychologically let me tell you the distinction between these two things psychology is about the content of the mind the story what was the event whereas neurology is about how is the brain processing the content it doesn't even care what it is essentially the human organism doesn't care if the trauma was from a train accident, um, uh, it was from an earthquake, it was from sexual abuse, or it was from domestic violence. It does not care about the story. It just cares about did I process all the information correctly to survive the event? And if it did, if the neurophysiology survived the event, quite frankly, the body and the brain are very, very happy. They just feel like, wow, I survived, I lived, and I can go on for another day. It doesn't really care about the story. So the reason I make that distinction is I find many people with all types of traumas, accidental traumas, etc. they don't need to tell stories about them. They actually need to simply release it from the neurophysiological pattern that it's stuck in and then That's it. It can come to resolution from neurophysiology, and they don't necessarily need psychology. And this is often true. I'm going to go back to soldiers again. Many soldiers suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder simply need to turn off their over-activated system, but they don't necessarily need psychological counseling. And so that's a very important distinction to make because I'm not a proponent that people have to go back through the story and relive the emotions and the event. I've seen thousands of people heal from traumas um, without reliving anything. They just released it from the organismic structure and the trauma simply comes, brings itself to its own resolution.
0: This is, I think that's a very radical idea for the Western mind to wrap around because we're so into our story.
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's because we were trained from Freudian psychoanalysis to believe that everything was about the story, but only now recently, as we have more advances in neurology, we're discovering, gee, if you just restructure the neural patterns, you don't even need to talk about the story. And so advances in neural science is what's helped us come to recognize this.
0: One of the things I wanted to talk about that's kind of fresh in my mind is that when, when, when you discuss trauma, you also talk about wisdom, and you talk about how the neurology for uh, whether it's a spiritual experience or a a, a religious experience is comparable, or uses maybe the same neural pathways, or has a relationship. And one of the things that I've been noticing with the SoAs, I realized is that the psoas is expressive of this fight or flight or freeze response but it's also responsive to uh, total pleasure for full body orgasm and so the system seems to use and I think this supports your idea that we are capable of handling all of it um, we have this way of using the same circuitry or the same avenues for going into something that is fully pleasurable to something that's fully terrifying.
1: Well, that is part of the resilience of the human person, that we should go from complete joy and, and uh, tremendous pleasure inside our bodies to defensive pain and, and contraction and protection. Now, what's interesting, and you're right, as we move towards the direction of, if, if you will, releasing the tensions and traumas in our bodies and the anxieties. As we go closer and closer or deeper and deeper into a parasympathetic response, literally in the very cells and tissues of the body, we begin to feel greater pleasure. When we feel greater pleasure inside of ourselves, it's only natural that we actually move into more comfortable and relaxed relationships with other people. So now you have greater pleasure in me causing me to produce greater pleasure in my extension in relationship with someone else. So that if someone's sitting next to me or I'm holding them or something like that, they say, wow, you feel so comfortable and relaxed in yourself and I can relax into you. And now you see organisms, if you will, beginning to communicate to each other and because we're social beings. And um, again, Stephen Porges talks about what he calls the ventral vagal nervous system that is actually a part of the nervous system that causes us to enhance our ability to be socialized beings and that we communicate to one another through the structure of the body safety and pleasure. And that's what leads, if you will, to the ultimate, if you're talking about the ultimate loving expression of two beings, would be the sexual relationship where you go so deeply into pleasure that you actually relax into the orgasm and it becomes this, quote, ecstatic type of experience. You can do that with a partner. You can do it by yourself in the sense that many people in meditative state, they talk about the Kundalini opening or some sort of chakra opening, that sort of thing, and they feel this connection with humanity, something bigger than themselves. Well, that's actually a cellularly um, produced sensation in the body i feel so deeply connected with me that i feel the expansive nature of my connectedness and therefore i feel connected to other human beings or the universe or the cosmos or whatever but that's actually cellular it's a neurophysiological reaction in the body not to dismiss what some people call spiritual but we're actually designed to be able to feel those experiences as a human species
0: so so uh I I have so many questions. I love the the conversation you have about um opiates because a lot of people come in and they're collapsed, they're not nec- they don't look tense and yet there is still trauma and and uh and it's kind of disguised and something that we don't always recognize. Would you for a minute or two speak on that of you know, okay, we've we been about, talking about kind of the cortisol, you know, the revved up, the the tense right. person. But what about that kind of uh, almost hypotoned? And uh, Right.
1: Okay. So, here's an example. It, the body actually follows a re- very particular process of protection. The first thing that happens if, when we sense danger is we try to in a in a sense Befriend Muted. develop a relationship with the dangers
0: unmuted who's
1: the threat. If that's not possible, we will in fact begin to flee from the danger. And if befriending it and running from it is not possible, we will dissociate from the danger. Okay? And what happens is when we dissociate, that's called opioids. They're chemicals that are pumped into the system, and they're chemicals that help us reduce sensory perception in the body. It's a very primitive response that mammals have because if a mammal could not befriend the enemy and they can't run from the enemy, they're most likely going to be eaten by the enemy. And so all mammals have opioids that they're produced when they can't uh fight or flee from the danger, we have that same primitive response, so that we actually go into a dissociated response, and this is common, we go into this quite frankly many times a day, but if you think of stories that people have told you about traumatic events, here's a good one, somebody will say, I could see the car was coming at me, but it was like it was coming in slow motion. I could hear myself screaming, but it was like somebody else outside of me was screaming. The when the when I when the accident occurred, it was like I was watching it from outside of myself. All of those descriptions of people's traumas of these seemingly out of body experiences are actually produced by being flooded by opioids which gives you a sense of not being in your body. It's as though you are out of it, observing it happen to you. That's a very common reaction. Many people have this when they're driving to work and they don't even remember the past five miles that they were driving. They've had an opioid experience of being mildly dissociated and not even knowing that they were in their present moment driving a car. So this is very, very common. Now, if you had this as a child, and you commonly had to dissociate, meaning go out of your body as a way of protecting yourself, if you had an abusive parent, as an example, most children grow up living in a dissociated state, not really sensing their bodies, so that when they come become adults and they begin their healing process, they don't even know that they have a body, they begin to feel sensory perceptions in their body that they never even knew that they were not feeling. So the opioids begin to reduce, but when that happens, they may feel pain, anxiety, fear, tension, all of those things that the opioids prevented them from feeling during the time of the danger in their lives. So they will go back into feeling their bodies. This is where a lot of the time when you and I do our work, people feel sensations that they don't like or they feel emotions that they don't like it's not because our work is producing um, unpleasant sensations or emotions it's because they're finally feeling what's been embedded in their neurophysiology all these years but the opioids have prevented them from sensing or feeling it yeah
0: that's a real challenge
1: isn't it? it it's the most difficult one because We have to come out of that opioid-driven state, but coming out of it is usually an unpleasant experience, but it is moving in the direction of healing. Just it's, I tell people, it's sort of like taking terrible tasting medicine. You have to take it, but taking it is making you get better. And so you have to feel some of these sensations at times that you don't want to feel, but releasing them and going into feeling them is coming out of the opioid response and it is a move towards health
0: so david in our last minute or two i want you to speak to what certainly i think is on many people's minds is as we look around the world and all that's happening and we see what i think you've called and other people have called reenactment um of trauma throughout the human species um uh what's your words of wisdom on that subject
1: Well, (laughs) I'm actually more hopeful than most people are, and that's because I've lived through wars, I've lived through natural disasters, I've lived through psycho-emotional traumas in my own life, and what I discovered, if I take it up, not that I like them or even want them again in my future, but I have a sense they're going to be in my future. It's the nature of being human. But if I take them up in a way of saying, What is it, since I'm in this situation, what is it I can learn from? What can I evolve from? What piece of wisdom can I possibly take out of this experience that actually helps me build resiliency rather than simply damages me or destroys me? I believe that every human experience we have on the planet, no matter how painful it may be, no matter how much we don't want it, has embedded in it the possibility of becoming a more resilient person and a wiser person than we could have become just without that traumatic event. That if, if it has happened to us, there is something really powerful to learn from it. And if I go into the traumatic experience that way, I inevitably am able to see easy and easier some type of lesson about humanity and life that helps me actually fall in love with life even more, despite these painful traumatic experiences.
0: Wow. Thank you so much, David. So for everybody, you can read more about David's work and get his books and DVDs on traumaprevention.com. And uh, it was great to talk with you. Great to be Thanks, Liz.
1: I really appreciate it. It's fun being back together again. Yeah,
0: it is. I hope our paths cross again.
1: I'm sure they will. I'm (laughs) sure
0: they will, too. All right. Thanks, everybody.
1: All right. Take care.
0: Take care. Bye.
1: Bye Bye-bye.